You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening. Good evening. That's a little better. I know it's a little dreary outside, but we're going to bring some sunshine this evening. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, this beautiful building that you're sitting in. And we're so pleased to have you here this evening for our Writers Live series. So this evening, I would like to introduce Dr. Peter Levy, who is a professor of history at York College in Pennsylvania, where he teaches U.S. history classes. He has received many academic awards, including a fellow at the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute at Harvard University, the National Endowment for the Humanities Summer Institute. He also has received a Professional Service and Leadership Award from York College, Faculty Recognition Award, and a Fulbright Academic Specialist Award. And he has written several publications, including Civil War on Ray Street, The Civil Rights Movement in Cambridge, Maryland, and his latest work, The Great Uprising, Race Riots in Urban America during the 1960s. Please join me and welcoming Dr. Levy to the Pratt Library in Baltimore. So first, thanks uh, Enoch Pratt for inviting me here and uh, the Ivy Bookstore as well. Um, I moved to Baltimore in 1989 uh, when I started my job at York College and this is probably one of the first places that I came and did research here and up in the Maryland room and in the microfilm room which was the only place at the time that I think had the Cambridge Daily Banner, which was one of the sources I used for my first book. Um, I didn't always get to learn the librarians' names, so I didn't thank them in person by, by name in my book, but I did acknowledge the help that they uh, provided me in years in finding books and tracking down sources. Uh, for anyone who does historical research, um, we really need the help of librarian and archivists who know the material uh, well. Um, I want to begin reading a very brief excerpt from the introduction of my book. I'll try to read it slowly. Part of it is up here with some ellipses. It's from the introduction. Uh, and then after reading the excerpt, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the questions I raised, uh, the method I used to answer those questions, some of my findings, and I definitely want to leave some time for questions. I find that's the most interesting part. Uh, between 1962 and 19, sorry, 1963 and 1972, Americans experienced over 750 urban revolts. Upwards of 525 cities were affected, including nearly everyone with a black population over 50,000. The two largest waves came during the summer of 1967 and during Holy Week of 1968, following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. In these two years alone, 125 people were killed, nearly 7,000 were injured, approximately 45,000 arrests were made, and property damage topped $127 million, or approximately $900 million in today's dollars. And this doesn't take into account the large wave of prison revolts and racially-oriented unrest at the nation's high schools. Considered collectively and with advantage of hindsight, these revolts constituted a great uprising, a term neither contemporary pundits nor social scientists or historians uh, have employed to date. While estimates of the number of people who were impacted by the revolts vary widely, 
The great uprising affected millions of Americans, from those who took to the streets and whose, to those whose businesses were looted or burned to the ground. As contemporaries from Martin Luther King to H. Rap Brown observed, and as most historians have agreed, they demonstrated the inadequacies or shortcomings of the civil rights movement, waking the nation up to the fact that the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 did not signify the fulfillment of the black freedom struggle. And then I go on. So, th so that's the basic gist of my book. That I think most importantly, we need to look at these revolts collectively as a great uprising. Now, a fair amount of work has been done on individual revolts. Uh, and there were also lots of works done by social scientists at the time that tried to look at them collectively. Um, but I took an approach that was a little different. I focused on revolts in three separate communities, all pretty close to here, one being here. Uh, first being Cambridge, Maryland, which I had written a book on the kind of a long black freedom struggle in Cambridge, a town which I knew almost nothing about when I first um, came to it. I was born and raised in California. I didn't know Cambridge, Maryland from Cambridge, England from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I first became attracted to it because I, I knew I wanted to study the uh, black freedom struggle in the latter part of the 1960s, and I had heard that H. Rap Brown allegedly had incited a riot there. Little did I know that there was this incredibly vibrant movement in the city years beforehand. Um, Due to my work on that, I was invited to participate in a group that looked at Baltimore's uh, 1968 revolt in the year 2008. This was a, a kind of a collective examination done by, uh, by a group of scholars. There's a wonderful website that they put together. They had a conference. There were artists who were involved. Um, and it's still a, a great source to go to. And meanwhile, I was teaching in York all along, and little did I even know that York had actually had a fairly... Uh, Severe revolt as well, but for years no one talked about it. And I'll, I'll mention kind of how it came uh, to public knowledge. So I came to these partly for personal reasons, but over time I came to realize that one of the advantages of looking at these three cities, besides that I knew them, uh, was that they allowed us to think of the revolts demographically as more diverse than we traditionally do. Most of us think the revolts is taking place just in very large communities. Traditionally we study Detroit, Newark, um, and uh, Los Angeles because of the Watts riot in 1965. Uh, and these cities have been studied time and time again. There's even a film about Detroit, it's riot 1967, one which a lot of scholars, and I agree with them, has uh, some problems with it. So Baltimore is a large city. So you know, I think it was important to look at Baltimore. But one of the advantages of looking at Cambridge and, and York is that they are, they are not large cities. Cambridge is actually a relatively small city. Uh, York is a mid-sized community. And as I started off, I noted that virtually you know, over 500 communities had revolts. And, and, and what this allowed us to do is traditionally Americans thought of race as a southern problem. And we've in some ways replaced it with an equally problematic uh, notion that somehow race is just a problem of uh, large urban cities. When in fact, race is a national problem. It knows really no demographic boundaries. In addition, chronologically, one of the advantages of looking at these three cities is they, they expanded our stretched our understanding of when the revolts took place. Cambridge actually had revolts not just once, but arguably three or four times, 63, 64, and again in 67. We almost never think of revolts taking place before uh, 1965. Some scholars have begun to remind us that revolt took place in, Har in Harlem in 1964, in Philadelphia in 64, in Rochester, but almost no one's discussed the revolts that took place earlier than that, including uh, in Birmingham, uh, 
Alabama in 1963. And almost no one studied revolts that took place after Martin Luther King got uh, assassinated. So there's some work on the 68 revolts, nothing on 69, 70, 71. So I wanted to expand the chronology, and these three cities allowed me to do that. Uh, in doing that, I, I, I raised a, a, a really not all that unique set of questions. Uh, the Kerner Commission, when it was created in 1967 by President Johnson, uh, was asked to answer the question or try to answer the question, why did they take place? You know, who rioted? Why did they take place? And what should be done? Um, then and since, there have largely been two schools of thoughts on this. Uh, one is represented by the picture of the book on the right, which is the argument that radicals or agitators caused the riots. A very popular book at the time was actually a book called The Riot Makers. Uh, Eugene Methvin was a Reader's Digest and a National Review author. Uh, his book and a film that was made for, uh, from it was distributed to police officers across the country. Um, and this view, as we'll see in a second, is still a view that probably predominates amongst much of the population today. The Kerner Commission actually was appointed by Johnson. Johnson was convinced that there must have been some conspiracy, must have been radical agitators behind the riots, but the Kerner Commission came to a, a different conclusion. Uh, it made the argument that the riots were caused largely by social and economic conditions, not by radicals or riot makers. Now, I know you're not going to be able to see this. I'm sorry about it, so I'll just try to uh, interpret it for you. So if we looked at both contemporary polls and polls taken about recent revolts, we'll find that the public is split, uh, with whites overwhelmingly believing then and now uh, that riots or revolts, whatever term we use, and I prefer the term revolts or uprisings. Um, I use the term riots as a subheading in my book because, to be quite honest, uh, people use keywords when they search for things either on Amazon or at a library, and I want people to be able to find, find the book. But when asked what people thought was the cause of the revolts, um, whites uh, 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 agreed uh, or, or disagreed with the notion that social and economic conditions had caused the revolts, while blacks had the exact opposite view. Um, if we go further down and ask the question about the Freddie Gray uprising that took place in Baltimore, this is a 2015 study, uh, and people were asked the questions, were Baltimore's recent disturbances due to people with long-standing frustrations about, about police mistreatment, or did people use this as an excuse to loot? We see a widespread difference here. Whites said it was 32% argued, 58% uh, said so argued it was an excuse, while 60% uh, of blacks argued that it was due to widespread mistreatment. So we, we were still kind of in this bind where there's a, a sharp disagreement on, on, on what causes uh, these uprisings. Now, I don't think this is natural. I don't think this just happens. So one of the main things I try to do in the work is look at the way in which our understanding of the revolts was constructed. Constructed or developed first and foremost by uh, politicians, uh, by pundits, and by those who saw reasons to construct our understanding of the revolts in one way or another. And one of the persons who uh, is very important uh, in this construction is one who we've largely forgotten uh, is Maryland's own Governor Spiro Agnew who later on became uh, Vice President of the United States. Um, on July 24th, 1967, both he and H. Rapp Brown were fairly unknown individuals. Brown had recently uh, taken over as the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. 
Uh, and uh, Agnew had been inaugurated as the governor of Maryland uh, earlier that year. Agnew had a reputation as a moderate, uh, kind of Rockefeller Republican. In fact, his election in 1966 took place because blacks voted for him overwhelmingly, supported him overwhelmingly. He even lost the white vote in the working class wards of Baltimore uh, to his opponent, uh, a guy named Mahoney, who ran on the campaign slogan, your home is your castle, defend it, which was kind of a blatant defense of the idea that uh, he favored uh, you, the idea that you could discriminate in terms of housing. So on July 25th, uh, Agnew was vacationed in Ocean City, Maryland, and he showed up in Cambridge, and he immediately declared that H. Rap Brown was the sole cause of the riot in Cambridge and demanded his arrest for inciting a riot. Brown was subsequently arrested the following day in Alexandria, uh, Virginia. He's not the only one to make this claim. Uh, the police chief of Cambridge, a guy named Bryce Kinneman, became the very first witness in the Senate Just Judiciary Committee's uh, investigation of why riots were taking place. And Kinneman said that Brown was, quote, the sole cause of the riots uh, in, in, in Cambridge. Newspapers, by and large, followed this tract. Uh, Brown would be pursued for the next five years in the courts as an insider, not just of the riot in Cambridge, but most newspapers argued as an agitator who was causing revolts across the country. Uh, as a little side note, ultimately uh, that charge was dismissed in the early 1970s because of a lack of evidence, um, but by then Brown had been arrested on other totally unrelated charges. Um, in 1968, Following King's assassination, uh, revolts took place in Baltimore, Maryland, and Agnew again appeared on the national scene. He'd been somewhat forgotten in between, in which case he not only accused radicals, and he had a wonderful kind of a way with language, uh, but he also accused black moderates and by, really by extension, white liberals of having caused the riots. Essentially, their cultural permissiveness, their unwillingness to... Uh, control black radicals, he argued, had caused the riots. In the next few weeks, he became kind of a national phenom. Uh, Pat Buchanan, Richard Nixon began to pay attention to him. At the National Governor's Conference later that summer, Agnew became maybe the harshest critic of the Kerner Commission, uh, making the argument that the commission blamed everyone but those who rioted themselves for the riots. I'd actually like to quote part of his, his language because it it, it resonates today. It's amazing, I think, how, how when you hear what Agnew says, it, it, it almost sounds like he's a contemporary uh, politician. This masochistic group guilt for white racism pervades every facet of the report's reasoning, Agnew argued. If one wants to pinpoint the indirect cause, it would be the law, that law-breaking has become socially acceptable and occasionally stylish form of dissent. Blacks in the 30s rioted less, not because they were better off, but because the climate was less permissive. Well, much of the nation was shocked when Richard Nixon nominated Agnew to be his running mate, stating out loud, Spiro who? Uh, Nixon's choice of Agnew was a brilliant political maneuver and displays Nixon's understanding of the overarching white response to the nation's unrest and the weakness of the liberal coalition. Now, what I found interesting in doing my studies of all three communities, though, was that even the Kerner Commission's understanding of the causes of the revolts is vastly insufficient. 
So the Kerner Commission, though it disagreed with the idea that radicals had caused the revolts, made the argument that the revolts were by and large spontaneous and in their mind still pretty apolitical events. They, they might be understandable why they took place, uh, but they did not see them necessarily as connected to a longer uh, and kind of really vibrant civil rights movement. Yet if you looked at these revolts in each of the cities I looked at, and I'm pretty certain if you looked at the revolts that took place in Detroit or Newark, I would make the argument as we start to write works on the Freddie Gray uprising, we'll see a pattern. And the pattern is that in each one of these communities, there were struggles for equality. There were struggles uh, for greater justice. But those struggles really had achieved nothing. And so, and the white community largely had responded only with token, at best, reforms. So it, it's not as if the revolts just kind of emerge out of nowhere. I think we try to, you know, if we, metaphorically with the, Hawaii, with the volcano going off in Hawaii, I think we, we almost have a notion that these revolts are like volcanoes that just kind of erupt and, and we had no warning of this whatsoever, which is just really crazy. So Cambridge is the single best ex example of this that I can show. So, so in 1962, Cambridge proudly had a, had a billboard uh, as you drove into town, and it said, Cambridge is a city making progress. Really? Uh, Cambridge was a community that was founded on slavery, where Jim Crow persisted for hundreds of years. Um, there were some advantages blacks actually had in Cambridge, namely that blacks had never been disenfranchised there, uh, and they actually were represented on the city council from the 1890s on. Uh, yeah, but this allowed whites to think that everything was equal. In fact, in the early 1960s, unemployment in Cambridge was at Great Depression rates. Blacks were confined to the all-black Second Ward. And when Freedom Riders hit the town in early 1962, many of those from Morgan State and local colleges and quickly galvanized one of the most vibrant movements in the entire United States of America, whites in Cambridge acted surprised. You know, they made the argument that everything was fine there until these outside agitators showed up. Well, soon the outside agitators were essentially replaced, because they really weren't outside agitators, uh, by one of the most interesting figures of the whole civil rights years, namely Gloria Richardson. And I encourage people to find out more about Gloria Richardson. And we just don't know that much about Richardson because she doesn't fit our mold of the traditional civil rights leader. She's female. She's middle-aged. She's sing single with two kids. Uh, and she's incredibly militant. She ultimately became a partner of Malcolm X, more so than... Uh, Martin Luther King. She was one of seven women recognized at the March on Washington. They realized at the last second they were holding this big, huge march, and there were no women on stage except for some singers. But then they had six chairs for seven women because they were scared that Gloria was going to take over the microphone and be a little too militant for them. And, and this picture shows this. And the National Guard was called in twice to Cambridge in the 1960. Um, once for over a year, which as far as I can tell is the longest occupation of a community during peacetime in the United States. So they had had these revolts. But then in 1964, Gloria Richardson remarried a guy named Frank Dandridge, who was a photographer, moved to New York City, and things died down a little bit in Cambridge. Not totally, though. There still was an important suit against them. Um, and whites in the community said, look, it wasn't just outside agitators. It was also, you know, just kind of, you know, local-born malcontents who caused the problem. We moved the malcontents and the agitators, everything's fine. And things kind of returned to the status quo. 
But local younger blacks, including a guy named Dwight Cromwell, who had been arrested in 1963, began to form kind of another kind of a new variant of the older movement and looked for help and kind of regalvanized support. And they reached out to Gloria Richardson, who regularly came to town, and she invited H. Rap Brown to come and give a speech. So there was this movement. It wasn't, you know, one consistent wave, but, you know, whites were kind of unnoticed, changed things. At no point did they ever think something's wrong with the idea that one-third of the city lives in one-fifth of the city and they get one representative on the town council rather than at least today Cambridge has a black mayor and has two blacks on the town council. Probably should be more than that. York was in many cases even worse. So York, the black population, is a much smaller part of the city. That's not necessarily true, and now it's probably a uh, non-white majority, large Hispanic population, but in the 1960s, York's maxed out at probably 15% of the population was African Americans. And in York, as in many other cities, one of the main complaints, not the only one, was the uh, abuse of police, symbolized by the police use of German shepherds. So anyone knows anything about the civil rights years know that German shepherd dogs... uh, became the symbol of, 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 of oppressive treatment. And the, this is the mayor of the city, John Snyder, who would routinely walk through the city with this German shepherd. Uh, and people knew that the German shepherds were uh, used against blacks almost solely. Just so for example, in the, in the summer of 19, sorry, the early fall of 1968, a, a football game took place between the York high school team and a rival team from near Harrisburg. And Fights broke out at the football game. Well, fights have been breaking out of football games probably since football was invented. Yet afterwards, as people went back to their homes, the police uh, used police dogs to attack uh, black and black youths alone. Have nothing to do with their fighting during the football game. Basically saying, you know, you're one of those black people out here who doesn't obey us and respect us. Complaints were made. Throughout the 1960s, there was even a move to create a civilian review board. We've heard that before. One was actually created, and then the mayor and the police got the police to circulate a petition to get rid of the civilian review board. He never even nominated anyone to serve on it. The Pennsylvania Human Relations Council comes to York in 1968 and basically says, look, there have been riots in 67, riots in 68 all across the country. You guys have the same exact problems. You have housing discrimination. You have police abuse. You have discrimination in employment. Just kind of a long laundry list. Rather than accommodating this commission, the mayor walks out of the meeting. The policeman stands up in the middle of the meeting and points at one of the witnesses and basically threatens his life or threatens his, his well-being. And the chief of police basically says, well, he's an individual, free to uh, say what he wants. Nothing's going to happen to him. So the following summer shouldn't be that surprising when a revolt took place. One of the interesting things I found about York is that traditionally uh, people thought of the revolts of the 1960s being largely revolts against property. There was the argument that in the early part of the century, riots, revolts were what were called commodity riots. Sorry, communal riots, people versus people. Generally speaking, whites attacking blacks in cities like Tulsa, Oklahoma, it was essentially a pogrom. But the argument is in the 60s, the riots became what they called commodity riots, riots against property, looting and arson. York had virtually no um, looting whatsoever. Essentially, blacks were defending themselves against police who had abused them for years. Oops, sorry. Baltimore, too, demonstrated maybe as well as any other city in the country, that there had been a long struggle uh, 
for equal rights in this city. There are probably, oh, 10, 20, 30 books in this library alone, not more, documenting the struggle of African Americans in Baltimore and their allies uh, for equal rights. Going back to the 30s and the 40s, uh, including one of the largest, if not the largest, NAACP chapter in the country with well-known people like Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Mitchell to chapters of the Congress of Racial Equality and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In fact, in 1966, most people don't know the Congress of Racial Equality actually targeted Baltimore. It selected Baltimore over any other city, calling it Target City, because as far as it was concerned, Baltimore brought together the worst of Southern segregation with the worst of kind of, uh, at the time it called a de facto discrimination, but it should have been called de jure segregation. Um, Maybe the best example of the, the, the discrimination that existed in Baltimore, that existed in virtually every northern city in the country, if not every city, um, was residential segregation, which persists in this community. So what this map did was is this, this simply mapped population by race in 1970, um, and then also shows where the incidents of, 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 of rioting took place. Uh, it doesn't distinguish it. Um, and, but what stood out to me when I look at this is the map. It's just well, we're talking about, uh, you know, just cross Lombard Street to the difference between being a, a very highly prevalent African-American community, usually upwards of 80%, to just across the street uh, at best maybe 5%, 10%. And this, this, this persisted throughout, throughout the period. And this map doesn't even show you the county because today where the county is about one-third African-American, we need to remember except for old black communities in places like West Towson and maybe Reisterstown, the county was overwhelmingly white. And that, that as book after book have just demonstrated and as lawsuits have demonstrated, this residential segregation didn't happen just accidentally. These, these, these segregation was, was created by state and federal policies, both what they did and what they refused to do. And that this residential segregation underlay numerous other forms of, 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 of racial discrimination, whether it be employment discrimination, whether it be educational inequality, um, whether it be uh, unequal treatment by the criminal justice system. And there had been, as I said before, protests against these for years, including cores targeting the city in 1966. Uh, but the white community of Baltimore, by and large, compared itself to other communities and, and, and seemed to be satisfied with the pace of change. Um, interestingly, Mayor D'Alessandro, if you don't know, is Nancy Pelosi's older brother, um, was elected in 1967 at the tail end of 1967 on a fairly progressive platform, uh, promising to uh, institute busing to try to overcome residential segregation. Uh, but in many ways, that attempt was 13 years too late. Uh, and then after the revolts took place, there was really, there was really no probably recovering the spirit to, to promote integration in the city. Um, and D'Alessandro's career was, was over after the revolts of 67. So this is an image of Cambridge, Maryland on July 25th, 1967. It's a pretty destroyed community. This is the second ward of Cambridge. This is, um, Pine Street was kind of the equivalent almost of Pennsylvania Avenue of, say, 125th Street in Harlem, uh, which had a pretty vibrant business community. Um, devastated by a fire. Now, the argument was that H. Rap Brown had gone there, given a fiery address, and it's a fiery address. He basically started off by 
kind of paraphrasing Langston Hughes and basically then saying, if this town don't come around, we should burn it down. But police logs showed that Brown gave the speech, tried to walk a woman home, that a policeman fired in the air, that the bullet ricocheted off a building and hit him above the eye, and terrified that he was going to get killed, he secreted himself out of town. Urban legend has it that he was secreted out in a casket, one of the leading civil rights families, the St. Clair's, owned a funeral parlor. At midnight, after a speech, things were calm enough that the National Guard, which was in the community, left Cambridge. The state police stood down. A small fire took place. Fires had actually been taking place fairly regularly at the Pine Street Elementary School, about an 80-year-old segregated elementary school that the black community had been calling to abolish for years. And the fire department, rather than putting the fire out, stood on the outskirts for nearly two hours, arguing it was endangered by these rioters. Linemen went in to the second ward, no problem. Reporters went in. Finally, the state attorney general commandeered one of the fire trucks, went in, and put the fire out. By then, as you can see, it was was way too late. Hansel Green, who owned the largest business establishment on Pine Street, uh, put it quite simply. One lousy fire truck could have put that fire out. Now, the reality is that fire department was, you guessed it, all white. And it had been at odds with the black community for years. In fact, in the 1950s, the fire department, which was also kind of a recreational organization like it was in lots of other cities, had opened a pool which it advertised as the largest pool to the west of the Mississippi River. was really proud of that pool. Also had a roller skating arena. But the only way you could get into the pool in the arena is either had to be a member of the fire department or a member of what later became the fire department club. And you had to be invited to be part of the club. In the early 1960s, the chief of the fire department, who also happened to be chief of the police, was known to regularly beat up black and white demonstrators. Actually, there was one white in Cambridge who joined the demonstration, and he had to, he had to leave the city because he was seen as a, a race traitor, a guy named Edward Dickinson. He made national news coverage for holding a sit-in at a place called Disneyland. In 1965, after the Civil Rights Act of 64 was passed... Um, So this is after Richardson leaves. Local blacks, including a local minister, decide to sue to demand that the fire company open its pool up. After about a year and a half in courts, federal courts ruled that the fire company had to open that pool up. Rather than open the pool up, this gigantic pool, they closed it down. Ultimately, ironically, they sold it to the chief of police, who then was willing to rent it out to all black groups or all white groups, but they weren't going to swim together. Uh, for a pretty hefty feedback to himself. So we saw that there was this you know, constant tension in Cambridge. Yet this kind of gets left out if you were to read the headlines of 1967. The argument was H. Rap Brown goes there, gives a speech, riot takes place, go after the radicals. Lastly, I think it's also somewhat of a misinterpretation of the aftermath of these revolts. Many people think of the revolts as kind of the last act. They see this, and particularly, I think, uh, this is even true somewhat in the, in the recent newspaper coverage of the discussion of the assassination of Martin Luther King, you know, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of King. The King died, and the movement died. 
Well, if we look at these movements locally, and Baltimore is the single best example of this, the movement didn't die in Baltimore. I would argue the movement enjoyed what I call the black power surge in the post-68 period. Uh, one example of this, the Black Panther Party, which had not been organized in the city prior to 1968, emerged in the city. Now, it was crushed by outside forces and uh, maybe perhaps by some internal feuding. But that doesn't mean the concept of black power didn't take hold. Uh, Rhonda Williams has written a, a wonderful book on the history of uh, welfare rights organizing, the struggle for welfare rights, which goes back to the 30s and 40s, looking at the city of Baltimore. But she acknowledges in that book that that welfare rights movement really kind of surged in the post-68 period in places like Cherry Hill and other communities. Um, one of the single best examples of this, now I couldn't get a picture of Coretta Scott King in Baltimore, but, but Coretta Scott King, following her husband's death, she didn't just become a, a widow who didn't pay attention to to the struggle for equality, she became very uh, interested and involved in the fighting of black worker rights. We remember King was assassinated helping out um, sanitation workers in Memphis. Uh, black women in particular were disproportionately found in the healthcare industry. And one of the places that had a lot of black workers in the healthcare industry was, was Baltimore. And she helped organize a chapter of a local 1199. Uh, along with lot, sorry, along with a lot of uh, African American community activists who, in some cases, had been at odds with each other, the NAACP core black radicals are joining together uh, during this period. I think if we look at and I, I can't do this, you know, someone out there, you guys write it to 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 look at high schools and 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 black students in high schools in in Baltimore and other cities in the period after King's assassination, as you'll see, is a, a tremendous rising black consciousness. Uh, in those schools. All you have to do is look at the yearbooks and see what, what people are dressed like, what songs they're singing, and, and the slogans. I mean, it, it really a tremendous kind of cultural revolution is taking place. So I think we need to kind of quit thinking of these revolts as uh, these negative moments. There's a guy named Kamosi Woodward who's looked at uh, Newark um, and, and looks at the rise of uh, Miri Baraka and kind of black nationalist in, in the city of Newark. What's interesting in Baltimore and in York and in Cambridge, uh, in, no, in none of those three cities do blacks achieve political power for really for years. So Baltimore's quite successful, in fact, in maintaining white political power, given the size of the black population. I do find it interesting that when I started to kind of put these three pieces together, all three cities I looked at uh, had black women mayors. Uh, Baltimore's now had a series of black women mayors. York has a black woman mayor who just got voted out of office after two terms. And Cambridge has a black woman mayor. So I, I think we can root this in a kind of a larger or longer uh, uprising. So last. So York at least also answers the question a little bit, well, what happens to these white racists? So York came to national attention, to a certain degree my attention, because I, though I teach there, I live in Baltimore. Or I live in, Towson. Uh, in 2001, when the mayor of its city, a guy named Charlie Robertson, was arrested, in conjunction with the murder of a black woman, a completely innocent woman who just happened to be at the wrong place at the right, wrong time during the revolt. He had been a beat cop at the time. And the allegation was that he had been part of a white power rally and had supplied the ammunition and the guns that had uh, 
killed Lily Bell Allen. Now, interestingly, a white cop had been killed at the same time, the, only, the first white cop ever killed in the city of York. Yet both murders no one ever solved, no one ever prosecuted. Finally, in 2001, the case was reopened, and most of the white community was like, oh, don't peel back that scab. Don't look at this. Uh, people knew down deep that Robertson, even if he hadn't supplied the bullets and guns, okay, he ultimately wasn't convicted. Uh, but it was a very difficult crime to, to prosecute. Um, knew that he had been a racist cop, and he acknowledged, because I was a racist back there. He claimed he had reformed himself, uh, though I think that's somewhat questionable. So, you know, this is, this, this is an issue that we have to think about, that it wasn't just kind of a black power surge, but not necessarily a retreat from their old views uh, in community after community. The cars, the Lee Bell Allen's car, the defense the Whites had who shot her was that so many shots were fired. This was their defense in 2002. You couldn't convict anyone. Probably over 100 rounds of, of bullets were fired at a woman who got out of her car. Uh, finally, a memorial was put up. You can't find it. She was simply on vacation visiting her sister, Hady Dickinson, who called it a modern-day lynching. So just to reiterate, we need to recognize that the Great Uprising took place during the 1960s that it was one of the central developments of our times. It took place all across America over a longer period of time than often believed. It grew out of unequal social and economic conditions, or what Martin Luther King called the dream deferred, and out of long-standing black efforts to overturn the racial status quo, um, but efforts that were largely ignored. It was not a spontaneous apolitical event. The revolts were not calamities that spelled the end of the movement, nor were they calamities that really created white flight in city after city. Whites were leaving the cities long before the revolts took place. They were more kind of uh, an exclamation point rather than a beginning point. Finally, by constructing a false understanding of the causes and consequences of the revolts, conservatives and complicit liberals allowed white people at the time and since to demonize black men and women for the outpouring of anger during the uprising, while simultaneously making it easier for society to avoid responsibility for the perpetuation of racial injustice and inequalities, which black people outside of Dixie have been protesting against for years. Thank you. So I'd really welcome questions if anyone has any, just thoughts, or, or if anyone wants to go get dinner, that's, that's an option too, or buy some books. Saw a black power salute by the librarian over there. So, so the question is, what, to what extent SNCC was involved? So of the three cities, SNCC was most heavily involved in Cambridge right from the beginning. A guy named Reginald Robinson, who had been part of the uh, Southwest Georgia Project, and a guy named William Hansen, who was one of the very first sit-iners, were both sent there, and other SNCC members stayed there for years, at least up to about 66. Um, there were SNCC chapters in Baltimore as well. Uh, one of the more famous pictures, uh, it's interesting, I gave a talk at Red M, and they used this picture. Uh, was of a picture during the revolt, and it said that Baltimore was a occupied city, occupied by an army. That was actually at SNCC's headquarters on North Avenue. Um, Agnew made the argument that SNCC had incited the riots here, or had conspired to create them. It was one of those ludicrous arguments I've ever heard. Uh, he claimed he particularly hated H. Rap Brown and Stokely Carmichael. Um, Brown was in prison at the time, so kind of interesting how he incited a riot, organized a riot here. Carmichael actually had been in Baltimore several days beforehand. Uh, he was here arranging his marriage 
he had no knowledge that Martin Luther King was going to get assassinated. So he's, he's here essentially on April 2nd uh, to marry a woman. He, he doesn't know. He can't, doesn't have some crystal ball that thinks somehow Martin Luther King is going to get assassinated. And when that happens, now Carmichael was in D.C. Uh, there. Uh, there were a smaller number of SNCC, mem- SNCC activists here when Agnew went after the black moderates at that speech following the riots. Uh, he didn't use by name, but he was referring to a guy named Robert Moore, who was a SNCC member at the time, who had accused Baltimore's police of police brutality. And Agnew made the argument that the black moderates had kowtowed to them, that they had been Uncle Toms for not criticizing Moore for this. Moore was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, the Ministerial Alliance, which still has you know, aspects of it here today, was not going to criticize more for making the statement because the Ministerial Alliance itself and the NAACP had argued against or protested against police brutality in the city in the mid-60s. Now, somewhat ironically, I'm kind of a little off a tangent here, uh, in 67, Baltimore's police force was probably not the worst police force. Reader's Digest and Wall Street Journal argued it was one of the better police forces. There was a social studies, uh, there was a study done showing the Baltimore police force was actually out in front in terms of developing community relations. Um, but that all really came to an end with the revolt. So SNCC was here, but not as much in Cambridge. As far as I know, there were no SNCC chapters uh, in uh, York. Except for Cambridge, virtually none. So Cambridge shares headlines with Detroit in 1967. If you were to go back to July 26th, because 27th, uh, 28th, you will see front page coverage. April, I, I just finished a paper on HRAP Brown's coverage by the media. Uh, only one comment prior, really, till 1960, July 24th. Uh, the next uh, month and a half, he gets in the Washington Post, New York Times, 43 times, I think 13 times in the headlines, all in association with Cambridge. So, you know, Cambridge was supposed to be the poster boy of the idea of a radical cause to riot, so that brought attention to Cambridge. Cambridge had uh, also gotten national headlines in the early 1960s because of the uh, conflict there. Uh, it ultimately... Uh, garnered uh, Richardson a meeting with Robert F. Kennedy. Um, about the only other small city that I know of got somewhat national coverage uh, would have been Plainfield, New Jersey. So Plainfield's kind of a suburban community. Only one group I know has ever really studied it, and it was a particularly kind of violent affair. Black power activists essentially stood up uh, to, the, to the police and, the, and, and state troopers when they came in, and they won some concessions. Um, but I think there was a framing then and since of a sense that revolts largely take place in large cities. Now there's, you know, uh, Newark's right across the street, the river from, from New York. Uh, Watts is the first large community. Rochester uh, probably deserved more coverage, you know, when you think about it. It was a fairly large revolt in 64. Um, York, virtually none at the time. I think it's just a couple smattering of back page stories on York's revolt. And uh, there have been social scientist studies that have come up with these severity indexes. You know, it, they're imperfect. Um, York, from that severity index, says it's the 25th out of 520 revolts, most severe revolt in the country, got no coverage whatsoever. So it's both small and outside the framework. I think there's a general sense that after 1968, these things came to an end. Um, same thing with studying high school revolts is almost impossible. 
because, I mean, you can do it, but it's, the newspapers don't pick up on it very much. So there's, there's some, some coverage of, of, of protests at a variety of high schools in Baltimore, but to sustain coverage is difficult to do. And you almost have to go out and do oral histories and start putting it together. Um, but probably if you start going around, almost, almost everyone's going to remember that in, say, 67, 68, 69, 70, 71. There were racial turmoil, if not longer, in, in, in high schools across the country, largely as blacks were demanding things like uh, more black teachers, more change of the curriculum, uh, the right to – there's still fights over this, to, to dress the way you want, wear your hair the way you want. Um, and this commingled with whites as well. I remember my sister's four years older than me, and – there were major fights over dress codes in schools after schools. Um, I think there's a, a sense of why, aren't I, why don't I know about this. Now, one of the ways I learned about York was actually through some of my college students. I had a non-traditional student in the, in the early 90s who told me she grew up in York and she wanted to do an oral history of the revolt in York, and I had never heard about it, you know, never heard about it. She was white, but she was a jazz singer, so she was kind of from an interracial gathering. And she told me she couldn't even give me the names of the people she was going to interview. Uh, she knew that, so in addition to the policemen, there were these notorious white gangs who defended their turf. Um, and I thought, well, that's kind of crazy, but I'll let her get away with it. Uh, she later became our head of special collections. It must be something about librarians uh, at, the, at the school. Um, and what happened is in 1999, the newspaper decided to write a 30th anniversary study of what took place. And that led ultimately to the reopening of the case. So for about four or five years, you know, the students, oh, yeah, I kind of know about this. But that was, that was 2001. Now, now I'm with the student body. You know, my 19-year-olds were two, three years old in 2001. And, and so they really, I think they do have a sense of it was ancient. That being said, I think the recent revolts, make them realize it, they, it more resonates. It's not just the American Revolution. So when you, when you, you know, I, I teach a, a, a course for freshmen. It's a freshman seminar course called Race and Justice. Uh, a lot of my students are from Baltimore and the Baltimore area. I mean, they're, you know, talking to, they want me to talk more about the Freddie Gray uprising, okay? And I'm willing to. Um, I kind of want to show them, unfortunately, the more things change, the more they stay the same, and I want them to think of the 60s as well. Um, so I, I think it resonates with them. Um, a lot of my students from small York, kind of rural suburban areas, so no, it's, it is not just ancient past, it's just geographically different from where they're from. No, I haven't. So I mean, so except for reading the secondary literature on it, you know, and it's pretty vast actually. So Detroit's probably the most studied city both for the revolts of 1943 in Detroit, and, but also, again, in 67, there are things that compare the 67 and 43, 44. Um, definitely. I mean, I, I, I think in, 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 in both cases, so let me re-answer that. Uh, in 1967, when the Kerner Commission was called, uh, one of the people who was asked to testify as an expert witness was Kenneth Clark. Clark, if you don't know, is the person who uh, did the famous doll study that showed that um, uh, young blacks identified with white dolls over black dolls and vice versa and helped lead to the Brown decision. Um, but he's still a social scientist, and he's asked as an expert to understand the riots. He had written a book called The Dark Ghetto, and his testimony is actually quoted verbatim uh, in the Kerner Commission report. And he basically says, you know, like every 
we have rights, we have these reports, and nothing ever changes. I mean, this is, it's, he goes, you know, there were commission reports after 1918, 1919. There were commission reports after uh, Detroit and, and other revolts. And there were going to be these commission reports. And the Kerner Commission printed this whole thing thinking things would be different. What, you know, what's, what's, what's really, really sad, I think, is the degree to which the Kerner Commission's report, which from my perspective is a fa fairly moderate understanding of the revolts, um, was ignored as well. And I'll just add one last thing about that. So there was a group of social scientists who were working for the Kerner Commission who wrote a report called The Harvest of American Racism that were making the argument that the, the, the revolts were also about power and that to really change things, you couldn't just have more great society programs. You had to have some redistribution of power. And that report was censored. And by and large, the social scientists who wrote it were kicked off, were kicked off the commission. Now, that was partly because... You know, the guys who ran the commission just knew Lyndon Johnson wasn't going to listen to their stuff. He wasn't going to listen to this more radical stuff. Um, but these were contemporaries. So I think Clark kind of understood it. That, yeah, tremendous similarities, residential segregation, there's job discrimination, there's police abuse in Detroit beforehand. Um, the spark might be different. You know, that, that, and I, I, I would argue people forget the spark is not always police brutality. Baltimore, the riots had followed King's assassination. The spark was the assassination of Martin Luther King. I was just reading a really, really good book. It's a great book by this woman named Catherine Hinton that looks at the rise of the carceral state. And she just makes the blatant statement that revolts were caused by uh, altercations with the police. Just period. Well, about 150 revolts took place after King was assassinated. It, you know, there had been bad relations with the police, but there was a whole kind of panoply of other problems out there that I think you know, burst into the open with King's assassination. So with that... So Cambridge, the local press, is the white Cambridge Daily Blanner, which is just clueless. Um, Cambridge tried to, some blacks there tried to form their own paper called the Cambridge Free Press, but it was sporadic. I, I can't find it, by and large. You know, I, I, in, in some collections, I find a little bit. Um, the African-Americans got pretty good coverage. So once again, if I compare coverage, so I haven't done a deep coverage of this, but... Uh, I've just finished this article on H. Rap Brown. If I compare the black presses of H. Rap Brown versus the white press, it's night and day. And they weren't really any big fans of H. Rap Brown. But when his attorney, William Kunstler, is going around and saying H. Rap Brown's being persecuted, he's being, he's being oppressed, you know, and, and it's not just going to hurt him. You know, this is part of a broader uh, attempt to, to say who are legitimate spokesmen for the community. Uh, the black press is picking up on that. Uh, when the Kerner Commission has a small group who leaks this report that says H. Rap Brown wasn't responsible for the riots, they, the white press either doesn't cover it or buries it, you know, back pages in the middle of an article where the African-American Chicago defenders on down are, are saying, you know, Brown's being um, you know, abused by the criminal justice system. Uh, particularly with Baltimore. Uh, I, had the, I, I try to tell the story of what takes place as well. Um, when you do have reporters on the street, I'm not always sure how accurate a lot. You know, this is tough. I think it's, Kerner Commission argues that most of the press coverage is sensationalized. The Afro is a little better. Uh, in Baltimore, uh, when the University of Baltimore did this uh, 40th anniversary examination of it, they conducted over 100 interviews, largely with ordinary people. You know, they, they, yes, there's an interview with, you know, some well-known people. But by and large, that wasn't their goal. It wasn't try to get the people who get in the same, get in the paper every 10 years, Baltimore Sun will run a kind of an anniversary issue, and they'll go out and talk to the same people. You know, Dallas Sandra will be interviewed again. Schaefer would have been interviewed while he was alive. 
Um, and that stuff's pretty good. What is missing? And if I go to write a next paper or next thing, it's going to be of the memory of riots. Um, there's not many people who are willing to go out, damn right I looted a store or I burned a store, and explain that. There were a few, so there are some reporters, you know, and I think the, the large, the, largely the argument is, is I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, and I'm not going to let my kids grow up like this. I've got to try something else. Um, there are others arguing they're looting for necessity. That rarely got out in the white papers, you know, just uh, you didn't know if the stores were going to be looted when you're going to get food again. So you would participate in it, perhaps. You didn't see it as, a, um, as, as looting, as a necessity. Um, York is actually one of the most interesting cases. So York has a newspaper that was fairly radical. So I don't know how many people know who Henry Wallace is, but Henry Wallace had been Roosevelt's uh, vice president from 40 to 44, but then he was kind of shoved aside for Harry Truman. And in 1948, Henry Wallace ran a third-party campaign on the progressive ticket, and he was supported by the Communist Party. Uh, because he opposed, and he opposed the Cold War. Uh, and he was very progressive on civil rights. Um, and York's paper was the only commercial paper in the country that um, endorsed him. So their newspaper editor, maybe personally, wasn't ever, but he had the freedom to kind of, uh, like a small-town newspaper. Maybe he was a little free of co commercial pressures to, to endorse a guy like uh, Henry Wallace. He was an early employer of a very well-known black reporter who would go out and kind of get the story, but often had to publish under an anonymous byline. And later on became, a, a, I think, one of the first black publishers of a major legitimate kind of commercial, news, commercial newspaper. Became a publisher of the Oakland Tribune. And I think has an endowed chair for himself now at UC Berkeley's journalism school. So, you know, came out of York. So there, there is that. You know, it's, it was surprised me. It surprised me. But even it, when the black power movement arrives in York, the white newspaper feels kind of affronted. You know, We've been your friends. Why don't you, you know, why don't you give us credit? And, and maybe there, you know, the, I think there was a little bit of paternalism there is the best way to think about it. But it had been surprisingly supportive. I didn't expect to find that in York. Well, thank you for coming out tonight. I wish I could treat you all for dinner. Uh, and uh, there are books for anyone who wants to buy them out in the front. Thank you for coming. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.